May 20th, 1927. That day was a very famous day. It was the day that Lindbergh flew the Atlantic. Now, lest any of you think that I'm really good with dates, the only reason I remember that date so well is because my mother was born on that day. And so it made it easy for me to remember the day that, that Lindbergh flew the Atlantic. But when that occurred, there was an aviation mania that just hit the United States, hit the world, in fact. When he landed in Paris, uh, that poor modified Ryan monoplane that he flew, um, made of tube and fabric, had all of the fabric torn off of it by people looking for souvenirs. There's no way he was going to fly it back after that. But that mania got so big that shortly thereafter, the Dole Pineapple people decided, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a race and have the first plane to fly from the West Coast to Hawaii? And so it became, uh, Dole Pineapple sponsored the race that became known as the Dole Derby, offering $25,000 to the first who did it. Well, probably no, none of you have heard of the guys who did it. They flew in on a Travel Air 5000 named uh, the Woolerock. The pilot was Arthur Goebel, and his co-pilot was William Davis Jr., who did all the navigating by Sexton and helped to figure out where they were going by throwing smoke bombs out the airplane to see how much wind was blowing on them to drift them. Part of the reason you don't hear about that and nobody really cares about that is because 10 people lost their lives during that race. It was a disaster. Most of those people who lost their lives during that race flew into a cloud bank. There are lots of cloud banks and fog banks right off the coast and got disoriented and either crashed into the ocean or wound up flying and got lost completely and just disappeared forever. Just two years after that, Jimmy Doolittle, some of you know your history, yes, the same Jimmy Doolittle that led the flight after Pearl Harbor. He led the flight of B-25s that took off the aircraft carrier and uh, bombed Japan. That very same Jimmy Doolittle, he was a great pilot, great aviator. He became the first pilot to actually take off and land using instruments alone. It opened up a new era in aviation, being able to fly by instruments. And so now that we fly almost anywhere, regardless of the weather, practically. However, a lot of people still die today. Because you see, the problem with instrument flying is you have to trust your instruments. You have to trust them. You have to believe that what those instruments are telling you is happening is happening even when you're sure by the seat of your pants you're doing something else. You see, that's probably why John Kennedy Jr. crashed and was killed with his wife and sister-in-law a number of years ago. He got disoriented and crashed his plane because he didn't trust his instruments. You know, similar things happen when people fail to trust God and look to themselves and trust self instead of God. And we see a lot of that happening right here in this passage today. 
Let us look at this passage in John chapter 6. By the way, this is John chapter 6. is called the Bread of Life passage. If you big name uh, names and I think it's always important to, to know the scriptures is to know where you can find things and so if you know the chapter you'll be able to find the verses and this is the bread of life passage I start at verse 53 and, and 63 I'm not going to go through it in detail I just want to summarize it Jesus is standing there he starts preaching he let's put this in context very recently he had just fed 5,000 people it was a feeding of the 5,000 Five barley loaves and two small fish. And he feeds them all, and there are 12 baskets full after they're done. Incredible miracle. People saw it, and so they were all following him. At this point, he was in the synagogue at Capernaum, ruins of which still exist today. And he was uh, teaching them, and he told them about Moses. Remember Moses? He said, you got ma Moses gave you manna from heaven. What happened to all the people who ate the manna from heaven? They died. They died. But Jesus says, but if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll live forever. Now, as you can imagine, this uh, scandalized the people, eating the flesh, drinking his blood. Uh, it, it was something that they couldn't imagine. Well, eating his flesh, well, that's cannibalism. And then, of course, drinking the blood for good Jewish people, they would never think of doing that. After all, they had the commands. And if you want to look them up, Genesis 9, 4, Leviticus 3, 17, and then chapter 17, verses 10, 12, and 14. They all say you should never drink the blood. And now Jesus is saying you should be doing this to my flesh and drinking my blood. They were scandalized. The problem is they took it literally. But it was not a literal. This passage is what we would call a mashal. The mashal is a parable or an allegory. Jesus kind of used that kind of thing when he was speaking with the, the Pharisees, if you remember. And he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course they said, hey, this temple took over 60 years to build. How are you going to raise it in three days? And of course Jesus wasn't speaking of that temple. He was speaking of his death, being in the tomb three days and being raised later. That's what he was speaking of. And so it is that they, they have a problem with that. The problem is, he meant that when he talked about this, is that he should identify with him and be close to him. He says the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood, that's an identification with Jesus. Death, as he was predicting, uh, that would occur later. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about eating sacrifices. Paul talks about this, eating sacrifices offered to idols. And in that, Paul says, if you eat a sacrifice that's offered to idol, you're identifying with an idol. And you might say, well, idols, they're nothing. He says, I know they're nothing, but they're actually demons behind all those idols. He says, so you're identifying with them. But understand what he says in that same context. He says, now look, I understand a lot of the meat that's offered in the marketplace has been offered to idols already. He said, if you go to the marketplace, buy the meat, don't worry whether it's been offered to the idol. Eat it. It's fine. But if you know it's been offered to an idol, then you don't need it because then you're identifying with that. And so this is what he's talking about here. He's saying, look, you know, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, you're identifying with me. I want you to identify with me. Does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? 
Not directly, probably, but definitely indirectly, because indeed the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of Christ's sacrifice and death for us. And so that's what he's doing. I don't want to get into detail here, but I just want you to understand this is the context. And what happens, many do not believe. You look at verses 64 through 66. Many of them did not believe. If you look at the passage here, and he went on to say, this I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. You know, that's the situation. We need God's calling. We call this election. We need God's calling. Because if we don't have God's calling to come to us, because of our sinful nature, we'll always find an excuse. We'll always find an excuse that keeps us from him. Many of you listened to Ravi Zacharias, and I remember one of the ex- examples that he gave was of a young couple of young people that were, came to hear him. They were atheists. And a Christian had these two atheist friends, and they were going to bring him. And they said, yeah, we'll come and we'll listen, and then we'll tear him apart. They got done, Ravi Zacharias got done speaking with them. They went home. And they didn't tear him apart. They said, you know what he said makes a lot of sense, but you know we're not going to become Christians. We change our lives. We don't care. You see, the logic was there, but then there was no inclination on their part to follow Jesus Christ. And so we see the necessity of the Holy Spirit coming in and breaking down these barriers. But we also see many of these people just turning away. And uh, they no longer followed him. Now, if you look at the life of, of Jesus, very often it's divided. His ministry, the three years of his ministry, is divided into three phases. First is the year of initiation. The second is the year of pop- popularity. The third is the year of opposition. This may well be the start of that third year. The year of opposition. And so Jesus turns around in verse 67 and uh, he turns to his disciples, the 12 that are there. He says, do you want to leave? You do not want to leave me too, do you? And so he's asking them the question, how about you? Are you going to follow the crowd? Are you going to do what everybody else is doing? They were following me all the time. Now they're not anymore. Are you going to follow them? And here we have Peter's second great confession. And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter said, where should we go? There is no place else to go. You have the words of eternal life. I want you to know two things here. First, that Jesus is alone has the words of eternal life. When Peter is saying, where else would, you, would we go? He is saying, look, because you have the words of eternal life, nobody else does. That's why we can't go anywhere else. You have them, you alone. You're not one solution among many. There is no place else to go. Jesus Christ is the only way. And number two, I want you to note the words of eternal 
life. In other words, you have the words that are of utmost importance. You have the words of meaning. They really mean something. They are really important. They're really important for living. You see, because so much else is trivial in this world. One of the favorite things I, I have to do is uh, I love fishing. I love fly fishing especially. And uh, one of my favorite authors is uh, um, Robert Traver. And he wrote once a thing called The Testament of a Fisherman. I want to read some of the parts of The Testament of a Fisherman. It says, I fish because I love to, because I love the environs where trout are found, which are invariably beautiful, and hate the environments where crowds of people are found, which are invariably ugly. Because of all the television commercial cocktail parties and assorted social posturing, I thus escape. Because in a world where most men seem to spend their lives doing things they hate, my fishing is at once an endless source of delight and an act of small rebellion. Because trout do not lie or cheat and cannot be bought or bribed or impressed by power, but respond only to quietude, humility, and endless patience. Because I suspect that men are going along this way for the last time, and I, for one, don't want to waste the trip, because mercifully, there, by the way, when he wrote this, there were no cell phones. Mercifully, there are no telephones on trout waters, because in the woods, only in the woods can I find solitude without loneliness. And then he goes on, and he says, Finally, not because I regard fishing as being so terribly important, because I suspect that so many other things of men are equally unimportant and not nearly so much fun. He's right. There's so much of what we do is so unimportant. But there are some things that are important. And that's what we see. And what God is giving us is, is that which is important. And the things that pertain to honoring God is the most important of all. The most of the rest of it is rather trivial. And so then... Peter goes on to say, we have believed and know. In the Greek, this is what we call the perfect tense. Perfect tense in the Greek means it's an action that he took. In other words, he believes, he knows, that's what he did. But then it's a, in the perfect tense, it's an action that, that continues. In other words, the results of it are going to continue. And he's saying we believe and know, and because we believe and know, that affects the rest of our lives. That action is continuing in our lives. And uh, he says then, and, and understand that this belief, this faith, is based not on just any whim. It's based on knowledge. He knows. And therefore, he follows him. Many of you know the old saying. In fact, my dad even had a bumper sticker that said, God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. And there's some truth in that, but I think it's better said that God said it. 
That settles it. I believe it. And that's what we need to be doing. And then he goes on to say that Jesus is the Holy One of God. In other words, that he is God. What he says is truth versus today's relativistic thinking. You know, it might be true for you, but no. What he says is truth. And it's the only chance of knowing God as our Father and not as our judge. Now, how do we apply this? I want to apply it in a couple of different ways. First, we need to understand that Jesus is the only means of our salvation. And that is, and the, and the corollary with that is the absolute necessity of salvation. We look first at the sin. And what does the sin cause? It causes complete devastation. First, it makes a mess of life. And second, it alienates us from God. You know, the alienation of God, I think we need to note a couple of things. First, we have a society that says we're all God's children. That's not true. That's not true. We're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. And the second thing we need to note with that, not only does it alienate us from God, but we can't control it. You see, the problem that Jesus had with many of the people of his day is they said, you know, we've got all our religious practices and you don't need to tell us about sin because we've got it. We've got this under control. And they don't. And we cannot handle the sin that we have. We don't have it under control. Only God can do that. But that's where we see the love of God that comes in. Our God loves his children and because of that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to take away our sins and then to rise three days later we note first that is the only means of salvation it's the only way we can become God's child is by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross but more than that it's also proof that God loves us and really cares for us Romans 8.32 tells us, Paul is writing and he says, how could he who sent his son to die for us, how will he not freely give us all good things? It may not be the things we like, but they'll be good for us. As Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. Well, what are the words of eternal life that we have? It's indeed God's word here. God's word, the Bible, is a guide for how we live every aspect of life. And it demands that we know it. Unfortunately, we seem to live in a society that is more biblically ignorant almost than ever before. You know, and, and part of it is because people just don't study God's word. They, they don't read it. And they don't realize all the things that are there. And when you start dealing with some people and telling them what's in God's word, they say, that's in there. A number of years ago, Ellenville Hospital had the thing, what they call healing arts. One of the things that I like to do is I like to photograph birds. And I have quite a few bird photographs. And since my wife was working there at the time, she talked with one of them and she said, well, why don't you have kind of a show? And I had a show for a couple months there with all my bird photographs. And so I had a bunch of bird photographs all around, yellow or red-bellied woodpeckers, um, cedar waxwings, cardinals, scarlet tanager, bluebird, you know, um, purple finch, you name it, a bunch of birds. And 
one of the questions that I was asked a number of times by people who came through and they're looking at these birds and they say, oh, what a beautiful bird. Where did, you, where did you take a picture of that beautiful bird? I said, right here in the Hudson Valley. They said, here in the Hudson Valley? Do we have birds that look that? Yes, we do. You just never noticed them, did you? You never went out to look for them. And it's the same with God's word. Now, a lot of things in God's word people don't realize are there because they don't go to look at. They haven't spent time in God's word. Or the corollary to this is not that they don't go to God's word, but they just go to little favorite spots and they cherry pick God's word. You know what I'm saying? Cherry picking God's word, just pick what you want. This one helps me. I don't want to go to the places that are going to maybe convict me or uh, tell me some things that I don't like. A number of years ago when I ran uh, the um, retreat center, the Waterbrook Retreat Center, um, one of the, uh, well, some of you know Al Van Dam, Al and Jan Van Dams, one of their daughters was getting married. And they thought, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, and they have this big farm in Walden and, and they, they've got this big lane at the time, the big lane that went down. Wouldn't it be nice if after the wedding they could come to the end of the lane, hop in a, in a horse and carriage and be, you know, ride down in a nice horse and carriage. And of course we had the horse and uh, Mr. Van Dyke, uh, who had donated all the property, he, he actually owned the horses and the carriage and and so we brought them from Waterbrook. We brought them over there. The night before, we, we got on the wagon. We took the horse. And this one horse, she was, she was our second choice, but she was the one we could get on the, on the uh, trailer. Uh, first choice was she was too stubborn. We couldn't get her on the trailer. So she went down, went back. Oh, perfect. This is not a, not a problem. Big, long lane. There's a pasture on the one side. The cows had been put in that night. So the day of the wedding comes, we're all there. The next day, we're all ready to go. We say, let's just give it one more try. We'll just drive down while we're waiting for them to come to the end, and we'll try it. Mr. Van Dyke and my wife were in the front of the seat of the wagon. I was in the back with two of my daughters, and we started to, to take off down the lane. There's one thing different than from the evening before. They had let the cows out. They thought, wouldn't it be nice to just have the cows out in the pasture across the way? We found out something about the horse that we had that we never knew before. She had a phobia about cows. She took off and she just ran and bolted off the pathway and there were big trees along there. She ran right next to one. The wagon hit the tree and, and her harnessing just exploded off of her. The shafts of the, of, the, of the wagon just exploded. You get to understand how powerful even a small horses. And, and she just took off, went over the field, and I, of course, got knocked forward. My kids weren't hurt. Karen and Barney Van Dyke went off the wagon onto the ground. Barney was in his 80s at the time. Very good driver, but he was in the 80s. So he got the ambulance out there right away, took Barney to the hospital, to St. Luke's. They took x-rays. They said, okay, yeah, you're bruised. Go home. No, no broken bones. You're fine. In the middle of the night, Barney Van Dyke could not sleep. He was in horrible pain. His son took him to one of the hospitals down there in New Jersey. And they 
took x-rays again and they said, broken, no broken bones, my foot, you've got broken ribs. That's why you have so much pain. You've got broken bones. Now the first report that we got is the report we wanted to hear. Nothing's wrong. The second report that we got is the report we needed to hear. And the Bible gives us both. But we need to be in God's word so that we hear the reports that we need to hear as well as the ones we want to hear. The other problem is we get so pragmatic. Well, yes, the Bible says this, but you know, we kind of have to meld it with the things that are going on today, right? Isn't there some way we can make a compromise? You know, it just doesn't seem pragmatic. And so we look at the Bible and we say, well, yes, it says that, but let's do the pragmatic thing. Marvin Olasky, editor of World Magazine, he says that's one of the problems we have with a lot of the universities, the Christian universities today. They seem to be married to Darwinism. They're so dedicated to theistic evolution, even though it might fly in the face of what the Bible says, that they still adhere to that. And that's a problem. It's even a problem in the church. When I was pastoring in Illinois, we had another pastor there, and he's a good friend. I liked uh, this pastor. He's a pastor of the Church of Christ in town, and, and they were conservative. They're not the liberal Church of Christ, but the more conservative ones that, you know, still believe the Bible. But at any rate, we were, had a meeting somewhere, and we got into this debate over excommunication. Church discipline. While I was in Illinois, we had two cases of church discipline that we had experienced. But John very proudly said, no, we do not do any, we never would do anything like that. We never excommunicate anyone because after all, he said, we want them coming into the church. We want to bring them to faith and, and all of that. And I started debating him. And, I, you know, and being a good Presbyterian, knowing the book of church order, I knew the three reasons we do church discipline, and I started going over them, you know, God's glory, the purity of the church, the restoration of the sinner. And, I was, and after a while, I rebuked myself. I said, why am I arguing with you about this? What is, what is the best way to do it? Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 simply tell us we ought to do it. That's all we need to know. We don't need to do no big, complicated arguments. Why? We just need to obey it. And that's what we need to do. Obey God's word. That's what it is. No, no compromise. Sad to say compromise with the world has weakened our church today. When I say our church, the church of Jesus Christ generally. And that's why I think what a contrast with Abraham. The Old Testament passage today with Abraham and Isaac. Now can you imagine? God is saying, go sacrifice your only son. Abraham knows one thing for sure. God commanded him to do it. And so he does it. Does it make any sense? No, it doesn't. 
Is it pragmatic? No, it's not. Is it something he wants to do? It's the furthest thing in the world he wanted to do. But God said, do it. And he obeyed. Because he knew God had the words of eternal life. And they needed to be obeyed. And so we come today, we ask ourselves, we're sitting in the same situation. Jesus asks us, will you leave? Will you follow the world? Or will we answer as Peter, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. No second opinion is needed. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, you do have the words of eternal life. There's no place else we can go. Help us to treasure them, know them, and trust them that we might live to your glory and not to our own reasonings. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.